views expressed on this program are not necessarily the views of this station. Content is for educational purposes only. Consult a financial advisor or conduct your own due diligence if investing. The show is pre-recorded. Everyday Wealth is produced and created by Edelman Financial Engines and hosted by Gene Chatsky. Ms. Chatsky is not an employee or client of the firm. She receives fixed cash compensation as host and for related activities, and therefore has an incentive to endorse Edelman Financial Engines and its planners. For additional information, please see www.edelmanfinancialengines.com slash everydaywealth. The 2022 Top 100 Independent Advisory Firm ranking issued by Barron's is qualitative and quantitative, including assets managed by the firm, technology spending, staff diversity, succession planning, and other metrics. Firms elect to participate but do not pay to be included in the ranking. Compensation is paid for use and distribution of rating. Awarded September 2022 based on data within a 12-month period. Investor experience and returns are not considered. At the intersection of life and money, this is Edelman Financial Engine's Everyday Wealth with personal finance expert, Gene Chatsky. Edelman Financial Engines has been ranked by Barron's as the number one investment advisor in the country. Now, here's Gene Chatsky. Hi, I'm Gene Chatsky, and welcome to Everyday Wealth. So there's something very interesting happening with divorce in our country. After I got divorced myself, I never thought I'd hear those words coming out of my mouth. And yet, that is what is happening. So From the 1960s through the 90s, the share of marriages that ended in divorce was steadily on the uprise. And at the peak, you'd read headlines about the staggering divorce rate hovering around 50%. And then the trend, surprisingly, reversed itself. The rate of divorces started to go down. And they have been declining steadily ever since, except among baby boomers. According to the Census Bureau, adults ages 55 to 64, they have the highest number of divorces in the country. And chances are pretty good if you think about it. You can name at least a handful. Bill and Melinda Gates, Jeff and Mackenzie Bezos, Billy Ray and Tish Cyrus, Al and Tipper Gore, to go back a little bit. The tabloids call it gray divorce. And what's fascinating is that this is not just happening in the United States. Gray divorce rates are rising in a number of other developed countries, the UK, Canada, Australia, India, even Japan, with researchers predicting that by the year 2030, which is not very far away, gray divorce rates will have tripled. So why is this happening? Well, my own theory is that it has everything to do with longevity. These are folks who got married for better or for worse, perhaps, but maybe not for so many decades. And with so many years together, the chances of growing apart, falling out of love, they definitely increase. We've also seen this greater acceptance of the fact that it's okay to want to be happy. People are letting go of some of these past pressures to stay together. Empty nest syndrome is also a big driver of this trend. After the kids leave home, older couples may struggle a bit to adapt to life without the kids that they've been helicoptering for so long. But one of the biggest causes of gray divorce, actually any divorce, lies in finance, financial differences. You may have heard that among all couples who get divorced at any age, research shows 
that money-related issues are one of the leading causes, if not the top cause. They are the top cause in many, many surveys. And this can include how to spend money, how to allocate resources, how to invest your money, disagreements over priorities, or how to budget. And it's similarly true among older couples. Those who are not on the same page financially, they may argue, they may feel unheard in their relationship, and that can lead to struggles. The Everyday Wealth in America report conducted by Edelman Financial Engines found evidence of this. About one in five people said that unhealthy money issues were a threat to their relationship. Almost half, 46% of all respondents said they fought about finances and money with their partner. And when you think about it, it is the financial side of things that really separates gray divorces from other divorces, divorces among younger people. And that's typically because you've had more time to amass more money. You, you've got to deal with things like dividing up pension plans and retirement accounts, losing access to healthcare and other medical benefits in those years before Medicare kicks in, which is a total pain, and alimony which is different during retirement years when the income has stopped coming, well, in. One final statistic I want to share with you about gray divorce that I find fascinating, women are driving this. According to AARP, most gray divorces, 66% are initiated by women. There is a lot here, and we are going to dig in together. I've got financial planners Andy Smith and Isabel Barrow from Edelman Financial Engines with me today. Andy, when, when you have clients who are going through divorce or thinking about divorce, what do you find the, the most common issues are? But, you know, a lot of people think that it, it's just that people don't know kind of what's going on spouse to spouse. Um, I think that's kind of more of a symptom um, because when you start having the conversations and you talk with people and you try to start figuring out what actually is happening, it really comes down to differing ideas on debt and differing ideas on spending. I've had a couple of clients who literally have gotten divorced because of debt and mm-hmm. because of spending. And so, you know, on the outset, you think, oh, it's because you're not talking about it or you're not communicating. And yes, that was there. But once they found out and once they were talking about it, it was almost this insurmountable hump, right? It's just, I can't look at you and not think about all the terrible things that you did from a debt perspective or from a spending perspective. And even when, you know, I get involved and try to start looking at plans and go forward, strategies and everything else, it all comes back to, look, there's just too much either debt or too much spending. And it's just, there's just no reconciliation there at all. The Everyday Wealth in America report said that 43% of the respondents to that survey acknowledged that their partner did not know everything about their spending. I think everything is actually a pretty high bar, Isabel. What do you think? Well, yes, but I think, you know, it's funny because I want to point out that that's not just something that's hidden between partners. I mean, I I think that we all have spending habits that we may not admit to ourselves are not 100% healthy. So, I mean, how much of that miscommunication or, or lack of communication between partners is is because you're trying to hide something and how much of it is just because you don't maybe track your spending well and so maybe you're not 
just lying to your partner, you're also lying to yourself about what, you know, what you're spending your money on. And I think it's it starts there. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I have sat down with a couple when we first start to work together. We're sitting across the table and one of the first questions I ask is, okay, what are your expenses? And then I get crickets. You know, people <laughs> don't just generally don't do a great job at tracking or, or managing their expenses on a day-to-day basis. They might have some general big picture. So, you know, again, I think part of that could be denial or embarrassment or or fear or there could be a more nefarious reason that you maybe are not sharing all of your information with your partner. I hope not, but I, I heard a story just yesterday about an acquaintance whose father developed dementia, and when the family members had to get a power of attorney to help manage the finances, they realized that the father had been supporting not one extra family but two extra families. So he didn't just have a double life. He had a triple life. And he had been hiding it until he just he couldn't hide it anymore because he wasn't in charge of his money. And so I think another problem, not as outlandish as that one, however, is that, you know, in a relationship, hiding any type of expense is going to be a serious breakdown of trust. But another one that comes up is, is hiding income. You know, according to a bank rate survey, only 68% of people have told their spouse or live-in partner how much money they make, which means 32% of people haven't. That one is actually shocking to me because when you're trying to support a household, when you're looking at all of the different expenses between groceries and mortgage and whatever you're saving for long-term, not to cop to what's coming in and how to allocate that to begin with. I mean, that just strikes me as worse than not acknowledging, for example, the extra pair of shoes that you bought last week that's sitting in the bag under the bed because you don't want to admit to it and put it in your closet. I, I mean, this idea of not sharing income, Andy, is it, uh, am I just naive? No, you're not naive. I think it comes down to, you know, kind of what we were talking about earlier in terms of, you know, a lot of people think that there's no communication and that's kind of the root cause of any sort of split or divorce. When we start to identify what the issues are, that communication is the first thing that we go to. Though, And a lot of it is just a matter of having both parties commit to running towards the problem. I mean, if you're not able to, you know, you may not be able to sit across the table at first and talk through that. So a lot of times I'm talking with one spouse and talking with the other, and I'm no psychologist, I'm no therapist, but I'm a pragmatist. And I realize that, look, if I can't talk openly with both parties, both parties are still clients. Right. So I'm kind of getting information from one, getting information from the other and having them both kind of acknowledge and commit to an eventual conversation together. But if you're not willing to have some sort of open, honest, forthright conversation about everything, and it's not just the spending and it's not just the debt or the investments or inheritance or where you want to live versus where the other person wants to live, nothing that you do is going to work. You have to be able to commit in some fashion at the beginning. Otherwise, whatever I do, whatever really an accountant or an attorney does, we're all just kind of spinning our wheels if you're not ready to kind of come forward 
and and start that conversation. I had a fascinating experience uh, about uh, two weeks ago for my AARP column. I have a couple that's kind of like this. The column that I write is a is a rescue column, so I help real people with their real issues, and I recognized that they were not connecting, so I scheduled a financial therapy session for them and was able to sit in and and watch this therapist do what you're describing, Andy, unpack a lot of their issues really from childhood, but then try to get them to talk to each other by talking to him, essentially. And, and Isabel, I think it's a really tough thing to do. Do you have any advice for getting clients to talk to each other, maybe without putting a therapist in the mix? Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, in some cases, it's got to start with a therapist, because if you're just absolutely incapable of having that clear and honest communication, then you have to really look a little bit deeper as to why, you know, why are you hiding these things? Why are you afraid to be honest about your money? You know, and, and, and at the end of the day, when you get married, it's for better or for worse. I mean, you're tied together, you know, in <laughs> in all the ways, but certainly from a financial perspective. I mean, so you are running the risk that if you're not communicating openly, that could cause problems for you down the line more than just the the sense of betrayal. I mean, look what happened to Real Housewives star Teresa Judice from Real Housewives of, of New Jersey. She went to prison because of her ex-husband's bankruptcy fraud. So who knows, you know, how much really she was aware of about that. But because they were married, you know, she ended up in prison too. Again, that's not going to happen to most of us, hopefully. But you never know. And the point is, is that your money is tied together from a legal perspective. I think the first step for most, if, you know, it's not a situation where you need a therapist, but you really just need to kind of sit down and figure out where you stand is to talk with a financial planner, to have a disinterested third party, because I think it's a lot easier for me at least to take advice from someone else Mm -hmm. than it is to take advice from my husband. You know, if my husband has advice for me, I usually take it as like a critique instead of what he's trying to give me advice, right? And so I think that working with a financial planner is a great first step. You know, you get all those cards out on the table, And then you can start to develop a strategy to move forward in a way that works for both members of the couple. And I want to be really clear that that doesn't mean that you have to manage your money as a couple in the way that we tell you. Because I think that there's a lot of different ways that that people manage money. And there's no one right way. The right way is whatever works for you. There's millions of ways you can do it. If it's working for you, then that's the way you got to keep doing it. The problems arise when it works for one member of the couple or one, you know, one of them, one of you, and not the other. And that's what then can kind of create that mistrust or, or that mismanagement. Well, I think that's where the dishonesty comes from. That when one person has essentially foisted the way they want to manage money, maybe the way they saw their parents manage money, onto their relationship. And the other person, often the woman, wants some financial autonomy, wants to be able to go out with their girlfriends, spend a little bit of money, not have to ask permission, which by the way, feels incredibly parental. When you don't feel you have freedom, that's when you start 
to hide things. So I agree with you. I think whatever works for you is the right way to manage your money. But I do think you have to leave room for this question of, is this working for me, but not for my spouse? And am I giving my spouse what he or she needs in order to feel safe being open and honest and transparent in this relationship? Well, I think that that's, you know, when you when you insert a third person into that conversation, like a financial planner, I can be the bad guy. You know, I can say all the things that probably should have been said, and I'm fine with that. But if you're having this conversation and you see these sorts of kind of controlling financial, you know, behaviors, a lot of times I'm the one to call BS and say, all right, from, a th- from an outside party looking in, I know both of you, I've known you for years, I need to tell you that this is how it looks like or this is how it seems from the outside. This is probably what you need to consider down the way. The person who is controlling probably knows that and just never said it. The person who is being controlled appreciates somebody else kind of saying that and naming the issue. Now, there's a whole lot of other conversations that you got to be ready for after that and people storming out and everything and and fine. But the, the, the point is you got to be able to have somebody, you know, say the things that probably should have been said a long time ago. Have you saved marriages? <laughs> uh, nobody's ever told me, but I'm, <laughs> there, were, there were probably two. Um, you know, I said earlier there was one that I knew got divorced because of spending, one that I knew got divorced because of debt. I know that when I got involved with a couple of conversations, I mean, it was, it, they were in the 11th hour, right? I mean, they had the attorneys on speed dial. And when I talked to them a year later, they were still together. So they never came right out and say, oh my gosh, thank you so much. You're amazing. But the fact is they're still together and they were actually talking with each other and not, you know, clawing each other's eyes out when I was talking to them. Well, and I think once I think (laughs) that is a good thing. I think once you remove the the stress and anxiety of that financial conversation, because again, you're bringing in another person to give you their opinion on it, and so it's not about you know the two of you kind of hashing it out and figuring out who's right or who's wrong. When you have that third party from the beginning, and you are on the same page, and that doesn't mean that you agree about everything about spending or whatever, but at least you're on the same page. You understand what you're doing and how it's working. I mean, doesn't that just removing that stress, that money stress from the relationship? I mean, that has to contribute to a a reduction in the chance of divorce. Yeah, yeah, a hundred percent. We're going to keep this conversation going. There's a lot to dig into when it comes to what people refer to as financial infidelity, which is goes a little bit deeper than some of the small affronts we've been talking about. We're going to do that when we come back. I'm Jean Chatsky. You are listening to Everyday Wealth. Are you worried about the current volatility of the market, inflation rates, talk of a recession? Are you second guessing your investment decisions? What better time than now to ensure your finances are moving forward than by getting an expert second opinion from an Edelman Financial Engines planner? Whether you already have a planner or simply need a new perspective, they can help you manage your wealth plan to both weather the volatility of the market today and help you protect and preserve it over the long term. To schedule your complimentary wealth checkup today, call 833-PLAN-EFE. That's 833-752-6333. 
or visit their website at efewealthplanners.com. Put your uncertainties to rest once and for all. Schedule your complimentary wealth checkup right now. Welcome back. Thanks for sticking with us. We are talking about the growing trend of gray divorce. It's the phenomenon of people 50 and over getting divorced. It is growing. Meanwhile, divorce rates for younger folks are falling. And as we were saying before the break, one of the leading causes of gray divorce is differences when it comes to your finances and specifically something called financial infidelity, when one person deceives the other person over money. And it is pretty widespread. Two out of five people have committed financial infidelity, according to the National Endowment for Financial Education, NIFI. And the examples are pretty wide ranging, hiding money, secret accounts, lying about debt, lying about salaries, I got to say, and Isabel and Andy, I'm interested in your views on this. When 39% of respondents say they've hidden a purchase, a bank account, a statement, or a bill from their partner. Now, for 18%, they hid a minor purchase. 9% said it was a bigger buy. I don't think that 18%, those small purchases, that that does not qualify as financial infidelity in my book necessarily, particularly if it's not going to shake the trees of your relationship. But I guess it depends on the parameters that you've set up for yourself. Well, I think, yes, there's a difference between hiding the Amazon boxes that are on the front porch when they come in <laughs> and having a separate bank account for which you're funneling income and using for other expenses that you're hiding from your spouse. You know, there, I think that there is obviously a fine line between what is necessary to share and then what isn't. And maybe there's maybe there's a dollar amount associated with it. You know, I, I know that there are those who say, look, if it's a if it's a purchase over $100, my spouse and I are going to talk about it. We're going to we are going to make that decision together. And maybe your number is higher than that or lower than that. But but I do think that there should be some there should be some line in the sand. I, for example, I have my own sort of personal account. My husband has his own personal account. And we have a little bit of money every paycheck that goes into that personal account. And I can spend that on whatever I want. If I want to go buy an extra pair of shoes, I'm going to do that. If my husband wants to spend his on an extra round of golf, he can do that. And we don't have to communicate about it. That's where we get our control and our freedom. But most of our money goes into our joint spending. And if we want to use that for something bigger, then we need to talk about it. And so I think, again, that's where that communication comes into play. But again, it's, it's what works for you as a couple. Well, I think it has to do with the type of purchase sometimes. Um, so I've got two clients. One, his wife was having a birthday, and he wanted to take money out of an account and get her a new car. She'd been driving this beater forever. They had been talking about it. She knew that it was coming, but she just didn't necessarily know that it was coming. So he wanted to kind of do this. And, you know, I'm talking with him. Hey, at some point, you know, she's going to find out. Just have, you know, these conversations and, and bullet points ready to talk about so that she's not, you know, blowing you up. Why did you do this? Why did you do this? So that's that's kind of on the good side. On the other side, I've got these two clients 
who, I mean, he will call all the time. It's a joint account. Mm -hmm. He will call all the time to get money out for quote unquote home repairs. And, um, you know, I, I know that, that it's there. I, I think that there's some issues. Um, the, the wife uh, actually called and said, hey, is there any way for me to, you know, kind of say he can't do X, Y, or Z? And I kind of had to explain the concept of the joint tenant, um, you know, account. And um, you see kind of the breadcrumbs leading towards possible problems down the road. So it's at that point where you just have to kind of get involved and, and start that communication early. Otherwise, yeah, you're going to have these these issues where, you know, people are looking at each other saying, why the hell are you spending this money? You know, and then everything's just going to blow up from there. So can you dig into that experience a little bit more for me? I don't want to ask you to reveal anything that you're not supposed to reveal. But, you know, that's very interesting, right? Like you noticed that he was spending possibly not for what he claimed to be spending the money on. Um, She eventually caught up with you. How should they come together on this? Or is this just a sign that they are diverging and and somebody needs to say, hey, you guys need to separate your money or you need to get a lawyer or whatever comes next? Yeah. So luckily, I mean, I did see pictures of a home remodel. So it's not as though, you know, this is just all conjecture. But realistically, what I try to do is just kind of have both parties just kind of put everything on the table. And this isn't in an email thread. This isn't in a phone call. I mean, this is trying to get people into the same room and kind of hashing out all these different things. And then once we're having that conversation, I try to get them to compartmentalize and not compartmentalize to push it down and not talk about it, but compartmentalize in terms of we are only talking about financial issues at this point. You may have some emotional issues. There may be some other stuff that I absolutely don't want to be in the room when you guys talk about this. But what we're going to talk about now is the finance and the money, the spending, the debt side of everything. Because if you can't get this figured out, there could be a pretty good chance that you're going to have even more exacerbated issues, you know, with everything else that you're dealing with. And then, you know, okay, we got them in the room, we're compartmentalizing, we're just talking about the finance, and then really whatever plan that we all had in place before, I basically blow it up. And I start over and use completely new inputs, you know, completely kind of honest and raw inputs for that so they can see kind of what that new, you know, financial model looks like. Sometimes we kind of compare it to what was because, you know, I want to say, hey, if you didn't have this conversation and you kept going down this path, this is the difference between where you would be versus where you probably needed to be after, you know, once and for all, actually having an honest conversation with each other. Isabel, you've been doing this a long time. Why do you think this happens? I mean, why do you think financial infidelity is is such a big deal and, and so prevalent? Well, because money is a really, really touchy subject for people. And in many cases, you're raised where to believe that it was sort of taboo to talk about. So we don't live in a society or culture where we talk about money a lot or we talk about our money issues a lot. And so... That has led us to have some fears around talking about it, either because we're, we think we're going to be embarrassed by how we want to spend our money or by how we, how, how we are spending our money, or we feel that 
our partner might disapprove of the way that we're spending our money or our spending habits. And I think also it's in part, it's wanting to retain or maintain some of your own control, right? Your own control of the money. In fact, in a, in a Harris Poll survey of more than 2,000 adults, of the people who committed financial infidelity, 38% said that they felt that it's because of, that some aspects of, of money should remain private. So it's just a matter, again, of, of sort of not wanting to share that. Maybe it's psychological or maybe it's, again, because you want to maintain some some control. But but we see it a lot, I, I think, as, as financial planners. And I think it's important to note that that as Andy said, you know, we we can sit down and we can hash it out and have that hard conversation around, look, here's what you've done. Here's what this, you know, maybe one partner did and the other one didn't know about. And here's how it impacts your financial plan. But we're not able to actually influence the change. You mm-hmm. and, and you know, the couple, you guys have to get on the same page because you're the only ones who can control where that credit card is actually being used or what renovations are being agreed to and, you know, who's in on it and who's not. So there's limits to what a financial planner can help with. And so, it, again, it goes back to that communication. It's, the, the financial planner is helpful and it's going to shed that raw light on, on what's happening and what you need to do, but then you need to do it. Right. And and sometimes you go down the road, you realize you're just too far gone. There was a, a study um, from a couple of years back in the Journal of Consumer Research that, you know, basically says when partners don't trust each other with money, it can lead to divorce. And I've seen others. There's a famous study that I quoted for years called the State of Our Unions that as you said earlier, Andy, pointed to debt as the ultimate culprit and basically pinpointed the more frequently couples argue about money, the more likely they are to divorce in the future. So once a month, you're probably going to be okay. Three times a month, not so much. When a couple comes to you or a client comes to you and says, yeah, we're done, uh, we are we are getting divorced. What are the first few things that you advise them to do? And can we talk, because we've been talking specifically this show, about gray divorce. Can we focus this toward gray divorce? I mean, we're I, sure. it is different, Andy. Sure. The first thing that I, I kind of stop everything, and I just want to make sure that, that everybody's safe and everybody's okay. So once we kind of get that, you know, off the table, then, you know, I just go right into, all right, a couple of things. You want to start documenting everything. You need to put together whatever it is you think your entire financial picture looks like and then have the other party, you know, probably do the same. A lot of times I'm just hearing from one Rarely I've heard from both and then can kind of have that conversation. So a lot of times it's just the one. And so it's, hey, you got to document everything. Securing counsel is probably um, highly, highly suggested, uh, highly important, especially the later on in life that you are. Sometimes mediation works. Um, that's great. But again, as as the entire situation becomes more complex with children, grandchildren, sometimes multiple marriages, if you're on your second and you've got other kids and families and estate issues and very complex kind of wills and designs there, it's very important that you have a professional kind of working for you there in the background. And then that professional is absolutely going to ask for that step one, your documentation of everything that's there. So document, secure counsel. The third one is kind of 
it, it, it's what I found works and helps, you know, in all the years that I've been doing this. They probably want to have somebody that's not a professional, but somebody who is aware of the situation, just somebody that they can talk to and they're, who's knowledgeable about the situation and isn't going to, you know, cast aspersions or, you know, issue edicts or you must do this or this or this. But there's things that, that I'm going to hear. There's things that the attorney's going to hear. And, you know, a lot of times they're the same, but it's just having somebody to kind of, you know, be able to put their arm around you and say, I may not know what you're going through, but I can, you know, try to help and just be a good listener. Anything to add, Isabel? Yeah, I think, you know, there's sort of the immediate issues that you have to go through. All of the things that Andy said, I absolutely agree with. You know, I say, get a spreadsheet, write down assets, debts, income, the whole deal, because you're going to need to figure out if you're the one who's, you know, if you're selling the home and you're both moving in on your own, you got to figure out right off, right off the bat, what can I afford? You know, what am I looking at here in terms of my short term? You can look at the long term and you need to look at the long term. But your most immediate and pressing concern is, you know, what do I do right now? How Do I have enough cash on hand? How are things going to be split initially? So, yeah, you got you to gotta sit down, talk to your planner, get a spreadsheet, you know, of, of all of that together of, you know, again, all of your sort of data points. And then start talking through what are the other components of your financial picture that are gonna need, going to need to be considered. R- things like health care. You know, are you on one person's health care and, and are you not on Medicare yet? Well, you may need to think about how's that going to work? What am I going to do in terms of, of having health care coverage? Is there a pension? Will there be a pension? How does that impact how the assets are going to be split? I think that there's sort of an immediate thinking of let's get stuff split up. And depending on, on what state you live in, you need to understand what that state rules are, right? So there's, I mean, I am finding that even in the states right around where I live, there's really different rules around what parameters you need to meet in order to qualify for a divorce and how long you have to wait and, you know, all of this. And are you in a community property state or not? So you need to understand also your the, the state rules around divorce and splitting assets and ownership and, and all of that. And so I think another one would be Look, you know, you got to start looking right away at your legal documents. You know, Andy alluded to it a bit, and I, I think it's, it's not just working with an attorney on the actual divorce proceeding, but now you've got to think about, all right, well, if something happens to me tomorrow, where are my assets going? Who, who are, who's going to be my beneficiary? You know, it used to be my spouse. And my spouse was maybe my executor or the trustee if, if I'm not around. Well, who am I going to choose now? So you're going to have to also start, th- start thinking about who's in your stable of, of people that you are going to be able to rely on if you need help, if you need a power of attorney, et cetera. And then last is, and, and Jean, I know you and I have talked about this one before, but I think a really big one for people, and this is not unique to gray divorce, but just, you know, to divorce in general, is the home, the, mm-hmm. the family home or your primary residence, that is a toughie. Um, I think it is it is a little bit easier perhaps in a gray divorce situation where there's not little children in the home or not kids in the house to agree to sell the home and start fresh. But I have seen more often than not, you know, with people with children in the, in the home, it's just, it's just too hard. You know, they're just um, not at a point where they're willing to uproot their kids they feel too guilty about everything else that's going on, and they just don't want to make them go through another big change. And I think that's a big one is you've, you've really got to take into consideration all of the pieces of the puzzle that go into maintaining the ownership of that home after a divorce. 
Yeah, I had a discussion just yesterday with a friend on this very topic because she is starting to go through the process and she's a little younger than me. And and this was the big consideration, not wanting to uproot the kids in, in an expensive community, but wanting to make sure that there would be enough for retirement and that you weren't sucking so much into the place to live that you were really paralyzing yourself down the road. Such interesting information and such important advice. Andy, Isabel, thank you so much for joining and and thanks everybody for, for listening. If you've got a topic that you'd like us to talk about in a future show, we didn't do it today, but we love to take questions. We'll take questions on retirement, on taxes, on investments, on divorce, pretty much anything financial. So visit everydaywealth.com, scroll down to the section that's light blue, click the button that says ask a question, type in your info, and then share your question or request, and we may just tackle it on the next show. Be sure to subscribe to the Everyday Wealth Podcast as well, wherever you stream your favorite podcasts. And if you're new to the show and you visit everydaywealth.com, you can listen to all of our past episodes as well. Isabel, Andy, thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. Let's close the door on this episode of Everyday Wealth. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk soon. You've been listening to Edelman Financial Engines Everyday Wealth with Gene Chatsky. Edelman Financial Engines has been ranked by Barron's as the number one investment advisor in the country. If you've missed an episode or are interested in additional personal finance topics, be sure to subscribe to the Everyday Wealth Podcast. Our podcast library offers helpful insights on topics such as tax-efficient portfolios, retirement withdrawal strategies, investing, and financial planning, to name just a few. To learn more, visit our website, everydaywealth.com, or find our show wherever you stream your favorite podcast.